Not everybody wants to be famous, but nobody on earth wants to be small. Sometimes I have forgotten that, and once upon a time, many years ago, one of my boys announced that he wanted to be the fastest kid on the planet. And it annoyed me, because uh, I'm petty and small sometimes, and, and I told him that it would never happen, just like that. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, there's a you know, hundred kids in Jamaica two years younger and three times faster right now. And he said, well, I'm faster than you. And I said, well, that's the problem. I'm your limit, see? I'm the ceiling on your potential. That was, gosh, that's seven or eight years ago. Anytime sports didn't go well for that child, he would tell me on the car ride on the way home, he would sometimes tell me that I had crushed his dreams, and that's why things didn't, didn't turn out. And I forgot momentarily that not everybody wants to be famous, but nobody wants to be small. Nobody wants to be insignificant. Everybody wants to think that their life counts. Everybody's life does count. And we, as members of the body of Christ, ordinary people in a local church, we've been invited by Jesus and put together by Jesus literally for the greatest work on earth. What we do in His name, those things will last forever. And we have, as ordinary people, extraordinary opportunity, and that's what the passage in Philippians tells us about this morning. Make no mistake, every person that ever has been and ever will be a part of Crosspoint, just ordinary. There are no extraordinary people here. We're actually just a bunch of, somebody said, we're all a bunch of somebodies trying to tell everybody about Jesus. That's it. Okay. Some gifts by God's grace, some abilities also, some capacity, everything by His grace, but every single one of us, just ordinary, normal human beings, beginning with the pastor and everywhere else you look in the church, you'll just find ordinary people. And yet, this passage in Philippians tells me by example, and I know Paul was intentional about it, what looks like a very ordinary passage that just has some personal and travel information, lays down the single fact that made two ordinary people, one of whom you may never have heard of, what made them extraordinary people in their service for Jesus. They were just normal disciples. They were both Gentiles. They had grown up, in other words, they each had to learn at a certain point of time from the Scriptures what God had promised. Timothy's, uh, Timothy's father was apparently not a believer. He learned the faith from his mother and grandmother. The other man who has a strange name, Epaphroditus, we don't know anything about him. The only thing we learn about him is this little mention of him in this letter that we've been walking through as a church family. We've been walking through Philippians, and now we come to a passage that is far too easy to overlook. As you're reading the Bible, this just kind of feels like a travelogue. This is a what's next kind of historical information, but it's so much more than that. Listen, God is a master craftsman, and when he 
made his word. He didn't leave any extra parts on it that didn't fit, that didn't contribute. It all counts. Every word, every phrase, every idea contributes to you understanding who God is and following Jesus. So I want you to turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2, and we're actually going to study the Bible together before I start teaching this passage. We're going to study the Bible together, so be ready to talk back, okay? The question that I have, I want you to, Paul's going to mention two ordinary men. He's going to talk about Timothy, and he's going to talk about Epaphroditus. Timothy is much more well-known because Paul wrote him two different letters. As you'll see, Paul has a very trusted associate, someone who grew up knowing the Scriptures from childhood and joined Paul in his mission, and as Paul is going to say, is now proven. He's young, he's been tested, he's been tried, he's cried about it, we read from Paul's letters, but he is a known factor. He is dependable and reliable. The other one, Epaphroditus, is just an ordinary man from the church at Philippi. He's apparently not a pastor, not a deacon, he's just someone from the church that was sent from the church in Philippi to find Paul in prison, probably in Rome, and Roman first century prisons, like many prisons in the world today, a lot of countries, if you go to prison outside of the United States, you'll soon realize that the state actually provides very little for you. If you're going to eat well and dress well, you're going to have to rely on friends and family. That was the situation, it seems, in Paul's prison. And the Philippians know this, so they send an ordinary man from the church with a financial offering to sustain Paul, to keep him fed, to keep him clothed while he awaits what appears to be a very serious trial for his life. In the middle of this letter now, in this seemingly ordinary passage, Paul has been telling the Philippians and praising them and thanking God for them because they alone, of all the churches that Paul knew and all the churches that Paul started, they had this unique grace. They heard the good news of Jesus and immediately understood they didn't need to hear it, but they needed to partner with Paul to help other people hear about it too. He says in Philippians 1, 5, from the day you heard the gospel, you were my partners in it. You took it on, you took responsibility on yourselves. So we see that they send him money. They actually send him a person. They obviously encourage him and pray for him. They are joining hands and pocketbooks and hearts with Paul to help him wherever he's traveling to tell other people about Jesus. Now he's in prison, and Paul's going to tell them in this passage what he hopes he can do next. And from that, we're going to answer this question, how do ordinary people make an extraordinary impact for the gospel? I'm convinced this little paragraph in the Bible is there to give us an example, not from, the, not from Jesus himself or from the great extraordinary people of the faith that we all know, like Peter and Paul, but from, from nobodies from a man named Epaphroditus. Read with me, and we're going to study together. I'm going to facilitate a little discussion with the hundreds of you so we can answer this question, okay? Because you're going to hear two names. Paul's going to tell their story briefly, what he appreciates about them, but I'm convinced there's a common thread between these two guys that make them extraordinarily useful to tell people about Jesus, even though they're ordinary people. 
Philippians 2, verse 19, Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. In other words, that I'll be freed from prison, be able to see you again. Here comes the second man. Here's Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. In other words, the man who came from your church. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, little travel plans, two different men. What's the common thread? What makes them great? They, they sacrifice. Absolutely true. Can we expand on that a little bit? Just... Look into the look at the look at the text. Okay, sat they're they're willing obviously Epaphroditus was willing even to die, right? He nearly died in, in Paul's what Paul calls the work of Christ, which was just taking this offering and supporting Paul. They were certainly faithful, they didn't quit, right? All true. I'm sorry? They served others. I think that's the common thread. What makes ordinary people extraordinary for Jesus, extraordinary for the gospel, big in the kingdom is this. They simply put others first. Now, easily said, easily preached. Is that easily done? If I'm very honest, I don't mind putting others ahead of myself so long as it isn't too inconvenient. Like, I'm with you up, up to a point, but then there's a point of unreasonable and uncomfortable, and eh, you, just, you just pull back. Here's a very, apparently just a little hinge in the epistle. He's just giving them an update, but I want you to look through it with me. Well done, by the way, on the study. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. In other words, I hope Timothy, who's here with me, can make a round trip, can go see you and come back because I really want good news from you. I'm concerned about you. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's a troubling statement to me. Paul is writing this. If there was ever any Christian on earth who visibly had the power of God on his life, it was Paul. If any Christian leader should have motivated other people to say, Paul, I'm with you, buddy. I see what God's doing. 
You preach and people are converted. You push back through your preaching and your ministry. You push back the powers of darkness. You literally set people free from demon possession as he had in Philippi. You work miraculously to heal people. There's apparently nothing that God isn't willing to do through you. Paul, I get it. I'm with you. Paul was living that life visibly. The power of God manifest in him as it was in the lives of very few other Christians in history. And Paul says, in my circle, there's only one guy who really cares about other people. And it's Timothy. Look at, uh, look at the next verse. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ. Don't romanticize the time of the Bible. People are people and they always have been. God used, God used ordinary people in extraordinary ways, but understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying. He is saying, even in the days of the apostles, in the age of miracles, where God was showing up in manifest presence and doing extraordinary things, even then with a man like Paul working and serving Jesus, in Paul's circle, he only had one that really put others first, that put others ahead of himself. This passage in both of these examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, explains to us how ordinary people make that extraordinary impact. Here's the first one. People who are going to be big, who are going to be significant, who are going to have that extraordinary impact by putting others first, understand that caring for others actually is a commitment to Christ. He's doing a little logical connection. If you took logic in high school, here's a simple little premise. Look in verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. In other words, Timothy stands alone in his concern for the Philippian church. Now he's going to talk about everybody else. For all, they all seek their own interests, not those of who? You still with me? Did you go to sleep at any point? Everybody okay? You understand the connection that Paul's making? He says, when you care about others, what you actually show is that you are concerned about the things of who? Of Christ. That's a huge connection. See, a big part of my upbringing, not in my home, but in my ministry environment, people who helped train me for ministry, good men used by God in great ways, but there was also a big vibe in those days in my Bible college that felt a little bit like this. Since I'm right, since I know the truth, I can be mean if I need to be. You ever experienced any of that in church? You ever have anybody stand on their belief in Christ and their knowledge of Christ and act nothing like Christ? Paul says that's a foreign concept. What makes Timothy stand out in the many, many people that Paul knew in all of his churches and in all of his travels, he says, I have no one like him who genuinely has the welfare, the concern of others ahead of himself because everybody else worries about themselves, not the things of Christ. He loves Christ, therefore he loves you. That's why 1 John 3.16 says, because God has sacrificed himself for us, we should likewise sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters. It's a huge theme in the Bible. 
The whole point of 1 John, a big argument in 1 John is, you dare not say that you love God whom you've never seen and hate your brother who you see every day. That won't fly. We, we separate, in other words, doctrinal knowledge and clarity and precision and accuracy from behavior. That's not discipleship. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, in other words, if he's the teacher, you're the student, he's the master worker, you're his apprentice under him, that means that as you follow him day by day, you will act, feel, think, do more as he does. And people feel an extraordinary freedom to be incredibly mean in the name of Christ while saying all the right things about Christ. Paul knows nothing about that. He says what makes Timothy stand out is he really cares about others. And because he cares about others, the origin of that is he is committed. He is concerned about the things of Christ. We love others because Christ loves them. That's what sustains you in ministry. Listen, if you set out to serve other people inside and outside this church in the name of Jesus because you love people, you will burn out and fail every single time. Because needy people at their core are unlovable. Have you noticed that yet? They're unlovable. They have needs. They complain. They writhe in spiritual pain. They make unreasonable demands. They make terrible messes and invite you in to fix it. Loving them will not sustain you for the long haul. People who set out to serve others because they love them Flame out, burn out, get bitter, get disappointed, get really snarky. And so filled with spiritual wisdom, I know the truth about people. Listen, the Gospel of John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in the heart of people, and yet he never stopped serving them. Why? Because he loved his Father. He wanted to obey his Father. In the same way, if we love Christ, we'll be concerned for other people. So, if we will make the bold statement, I am committed to Christ, in that same moment, we should be able to tell others where that commitment can be found by pointing to the people we are putting ahead of ourselves. That's the difference. People who, are, who make extraordinary impact for eternity, who help populate heaven, do so by caring for others because they're committed to Christ. Jesus said it very plainly. He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love, for what? Not by your claim to love me, but by the way you actually love one another. Look at the next couple verses. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, there it is again, Philippian church first, not himself. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because, that you, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to, what? He nearly died. What does that tell me? It tells me that people who make extraordinary impact for the gospel, for the kingdom of God, keep serving others when things get tough. Paul said that Timothy was 
proven. And the way things are proven is not in the shop, not on the shelf, not on a blueprint. Things are proven in actual trial, in a test. That's the, that's the real test of a Christian. What they do when people are unlovable. What they do when the ministry, for instance, is not successful, when the results that they envisioned and prayed for and gave toward and sacrificed themselves for are not immediately apparent. When people agree with God's diagnosis that their hearts are sinful and fallen and selfish, and when people show all that to those who are serving them, what then? They keep, Timothy and Epaphroditus kept serving when it got tough. When Paul says he has served alongside me as a son with a father, you know his proven worth. Imagine what that represented to Timothy. Imagine what kind of pressure, what kind of hardship, what kind of hatred, what kind of abuse he had seen poured out on Paul. And because Timothy's standing with him on Timothy as well. He keeps showing up. He keeps moving forward because he keeps serving others when it gets tough. There's a Proverbs that speaks about this kind of resilience. Resilience, toughness, perseverance, endurance. These are all graces from God that he is working in his children. Proverbs 24 verse 10 explains it like this. Did you read that with me? It's really simple. It's one single sentence. And it seems too obvious almost to write down, but there's enormous wisdom here. Read it with me. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you faint in the day of your strength is small. I can barely talk. Let's read that again, shall we? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That verse came to my attention a few years ago, and I thought, well, that's, that's pretty obvious. Why would they write that down? See, one of the things about Proverbs is Proverbs many times invite you to ponder. They say things that are sometimes cryptic and sometimes obvious, but they're Proverbs, they're wise sayings, because they invite the reader to stop and think a little bit. This is one of those Proverbs. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Why in the world was it necessary to write that down to make this point? The whole point of strength is to remain standing when it gets tough to do so. If, when trouble comes, you cannot be found, your strength didn't matter. You're growing in spiritual maturity. You're growing in spiritual strength. You're speaking to your Heavenly Father. You are growing in likeness of Christ so that when it gets difficult, you stick with it. When the day of adversity, when the storm blows over you, and finally after raging winds of suffering and adversity and ingratitude from people and all the other ugly, discouraging things that come your way in ministry, when that storm finally is done with you and blows over you and blows through you, you, as Paul told the Ephesians, you having done all, stand. You're still there because you weren't there with your own strength, you were there with God. This morning I saw a little example of this kind of selflessness in our church. I looked out my office window. It's not nearly as fun to look out my office window because they've covered the welcome center so I can't look straight down on you while you drink your coffee. (laughs) 
I miss that. Uh, you cannot believe the shenanigans that I sometimes witness. <laughs> but it's cool. You're covered now, okay? <laughs> can still hear, though, and I heard some stuff this morning, but anyway. Um, I looked out and I saw some tiny little girls, junior high school and some high school students, lugging big pieces of equipment, signage and stuff, setting up for the children's ministry. And I thought, this at a very young age, this is putting other people first. That's what makes a church work. This, what you're experiencing me doing right now, standing up about three feet above everybody else with an open Bible, this is part of it. It's a vital part of it. But understand, we together are the church. You growing in likeness of Christ and extending yourself in love to other people, your fellow disciples and people who do not yet know Jesus and feeling their indifference and barely getting a thank you or serving faithfully for weeks and months and then the first time that something doesn't go exactly to plan, that's the first time you hear from them because there's a great lament and a complaint and maybe hints of they know lawyers, that sort of thing. Real strength says, I do this for the Lord. Here's the order in my life. Jesus first and others ahead of me, so I will keep going. I will show myself proven. And I wonder what went through Epaphroditus' mind as he felt himself grow ill. Because Paul says he nearly died. Paul seems in genuine agony for him. I'm fascinated by this because Paul had the faculty to heal people, but apparently not in this case. Paul couldn't make him well. He agonized over him and says very humanly, very humbly, I'm so glad that God spared him so that I didn't have one grief, one sorrow on top of another. That would have been almost too much for me. I'm enormously relieved that he can go home. When he gets home, welcome him, rejoice over him, honor him because he served you and he served me very well. I wonder at some point in his illness, if it crossed Epaphroditus' mind, what in the world am I doing out here? Why am I so far from home? See, when you set out because maybe a pastor explained a passage, you saw it clearly, God spoke to you and said, yes, you, you ordinary person, you can do great things in the name of Christ through his power. Get started. And then you encounter the actual practice of serving others. And you discover that people actually are very many times, me too, me first, unlovable. And you say, and I've had people quit ministry just this way, they will say this, this is not what I... Yep. I didn't, had no idea people could be so mean. No idea people could be so petty. Selfishness on an epic galactic scale, I, I don't need this. And you know what? They're right. They don't need it. It's just that Christ commands it. The American dream invites you to make your life about you. To always be looking vertically, to see your own advancement. See, pride doesn't mind serving so long as pride gets recognition and benefit from that service. What truly makes Christian service Christ-like 
is to serve others out of simple love and obedience to Jesus and let the results and let the rewards be determined by Him at the time of His choosing. This is all God has ever had to work with. This is why He gets the credit. We get the enormous blessing of doing ministry in His name and seeing things that are impossible without Him, but He gets all the credit and all the glory because He starts with people who are so doggedly self-centered and who so easily quit. Let me show you, by way of illustration, what Jesus was working with, even with the apostles. Go back with me to Mark chapter 9. Don't lose Philippians 2 for very long. We'll be back soon. But look in Mark chapter 9 at a critical time in the life of Jesus where he is aiming directly at the cross. The cross is near. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Gospel of Mark 9, verse 30. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. This time of ministry and teaching is so critical, Jesus has withdrawn from public because his whole point is to get the disciples ready for his own crucifixion. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will, what? Kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about what? You understand how callous that is? Dear disciples, we're headed into Jerusalem, and there I will be seized by wicked hands, and they will kill me. And after three days, three days after my murder, I will rise again. Here was their reaction. What? What's he mean? How's that going to work? I don't know. Ask him. No. You ask him. No. They were embarrassed. So rather than ask him and understand the magnitude of what he was telling him about his own death, what'd they do instead? They're walking along the way, walking behind Jesus as disciples would in that time. Jesus is leading, they're following. What are they talking about? What the pecking order is going to be? Hey, he's going to die, he says. How do you think that's going to work out for us? Hey, I don't want to be mean, but you know, you've, you've you're pretty insightful. You, you see all of us. What, what would you say the top six are in this little band of 12? Because, man, I started way at the bottom. I, you know, always saying the wrong thing, being stupid. You think I'm, you think I'm from top 50% at least? They weren't even discussing. What's the text say? They were doing what? He's the greatest, but I'm certainly better than you. That's what keeps people from serving. Christians will say they would do anything for Jesus. I just won't submit to this guy over here. Him be in charge? Me serve him? No. That's what Jesus is working with. That's why he gets all the credit. That's why years later, in the days of Paul, Jesus now in heaven, 
his disciples now doing the work as he promised, Paul looks around his circle of influence and says, I only have one man who genuinely all the time puts the welfare of others ahead of himself. And the reason for that, he really has concern about the things of Christ. What people do when they want to be great for God, they care for others because they care for Christ first, and they keep going when it's tough. This morning, I made the mistake of logging on to Facebook wanted to post a little something on the church website, on the church Facebook page, and then started, because as you do, right, started looking at the news feed, and that cost me about 10 minutes, which I didn't really have, <laughs> but I did see something amazing. A friend of mine pastors a pretty large church represented in a bunch of little campuses, almost all of them meeting in rented space, school buildings, in New Hampshire, and I don't know if you've seen the weather. It's pretty bad in New Hampshire right now. Another friend texted me this morning saying, don't say a word, but we're meeting downstairs this morning in our rented space because the elevator's frozen. I didn't know elevators could stop working because they were frozen, okay? Apparently they can. You make cold, cold enough, everything stops, right? This guy, young associate pastor, he does a video selfie saying shout out to the guys who are setting up at our portable church in Haverhill. He said, it's minus 32 wind chill. <laughs> and one of the churches, the truck wouldn't start. So they drove, he says, the guys drove their own cars and trucks to the trucks, scattered all their stuff among them, and we're going to have church anyway. He says, shout out to the parking lot attendants. And I thought, parking lot attendant in minus 32? Your ministry is outside? I'm, folks, we've got some heroes here. But you know, somebody rolled over, saw the fog, and thought... Maybe the ministry of prayer this morning, right? <laughs> Certainly second service, that 9 a.m. fogged in service would be risky. It's selfless. Who are these guys? I don't know. I barely know this associate pastor. What does Jesus think about guys who get up probably at 6 in the morning? from their town because they're starting a church in another town. And on the way, get the call saying, don't, you know, don't go straight to the church. The truck won't start. It's still stuck in my driveway. No problem. Phone calls go out. I'm not sure, but I think Jesus looks down on that and he sees selfless service. He sees ordinary men in New Hampshire who look much like himself. He sees the same thing here when you consistently put others ahead of yourself. This week we buried such a man, or we said goodbye to such a man. His military honors will be tomorrow. John Boyd died after decades of faithful, tireless, selfless service in this church. He was served by people who knew him well, who did so quietly without looking for recognition for themselves, and it was just a beautiful picture of what it looks like to put Jesus first and others ahead of yourself. And in all of that, John never quit. 
And the people who we call on the phone to serve grieving families in those times, they don't quit either. That's what Jesus does. That's what Christianity looks like. It's not a sit and soak kind of discipleship. It's a learn from Him, love Him, and because of what you've learned and because you love Him, go out and love others and serve others as He would if He were physically present here Himself. William Carey was an ordinary Englishman. In fact, he was only schooled to the age of 12. He became a cobbler's apprentice and lived a very ordinary life until he met Jesus and discovered along his growing in grace that he had a pretty amazing knack for languages. He also looked at the Bible with fresh, I think, God-helped eyesight because in his day, in England, all the important men in the church, all the teachers said that the Great Commission to go spread the gospel everywhere, that commandment was given to the apostles and didn't really have any bearing, was not directed to them some 1,900 years later. Carey stood alone and struggled mightily in ministry. In fact, the first time he preached in view of ordination, they rejected him, and it took him two more years to get ordained. He stood in front of important men in the church and pleaded for the formation of a missionary society that would take the gospel to places like he ended up, to India. And one of the most revered teachers at the time said, young man, sit down. When it pleases God to convert the heathen, he'll do so without your help or mine. Mm-hmm. But Carrie went anyway. Along the way, he had death in his family. His wife became desperately ill and psychiatrically troubled. But by the time he was done, he had translated the Bible into all, the whole Bible, into all the major languages of India. He had translated portions of the scriptures into hundreds of dialects. He had helped end the practice, the horrible barbaric practice of burning widows when their husband died. He had ended infanticide. He had become a renowned botanist that started what we now call microfinance and taught farmers to save money so that they could do their work better. He started a Bible college that persists to this day that has today about 2,500 students. He waited for seven years without a single convert, and when he was dead decades after arriving in India, there were only some 700 people who named Christ in India, but India will never be the same. Because of the influence of William Carey, and there you can find many, many, many thousands of faithful brothers and sisters. And it all started because a cobbler's apprentice would not quit. In fact, this ordinary man, this shoemaker's apprentice, explained his life this way. He said, I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. Can I tell you something? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you can plod too. See, Jesus is always moving. He always knows where he's going. He's always leading. Sometimes he moves quickly. Sometimes he goes slowly. He will occasionally give you times to rest and refresh and learn, but Jesus is always leading. If you keep him in sight, you can plod too, and there's literally no telling what Crosspoint can do if Jesus can count on all of us. If you'll look back in Philippians 2, it tells us that something we could, should do for each other, we should do for people like this when we find them. It says in verse 27, indeed, Epaphroditus, 
was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. What do you do when you meet an Epaphroditus? What do you do when you meet an ordinary person with an extraordinary commitment to Jesus and to your welfare? Here it is. Receive him and the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. How selfless was this ordinary man who we wouldn't know if it weren't for the letter of the Philippians? When he was dying, Paul says he was worried about what it might do to the people at the church back in Philippi. That's selfless. Anytime I've ever been seriously ill, my thoughts turn in one direction. Right here. What was Epaphroditus concerned about? He didn't want anyone's faith in Jesus to be shaken because Epaphroditus had gone out in the name of Jesus and thought he might die. He's concerned about their faith. He's concerned about their well-being. He's concerned about how much they're going to love the Lord based on how his mission to go help Paul goes. It's extraordinary. So Paul says, I'm looking forward to feeling relief. I don't want to be anxious anymore. I want to hear that he got safely home. And when you see him, welcome him in the Lord. Receive this man with great joy and honor people like this. So let me make this really practical for us before we go home. If you know someone who is selfless in this body, don't don't think too much about those of us who have a public presence in the church. Think about the people who, who don't have business cards, okay? Who aren't publicly in ministry. Honor them. Receive them with joy. If they've served you and you've seen the grace of Jesus through their influence, through their help, send them a little email, send them a note, shoot them a text. If you don't even know how to reach out to them, get in touch with the church office and say, I was really helped by this person. Let's do what the Bible says and honor people like that because they are serving Christ and we don't know how much a little encouragement, a little gratitude might keep them going for even longer and better service. And if you're not serving, if you can't point directly to the time and the place and the people that you put first, that you serve through the ministry of this church, could I invite you simply to make yourself available? To take that card and say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what you need. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what Jesus wants, but I'm available. See, in my experience, God tends to steer moving objects. People who take a simple step of faith with Jesus and make themselves available, He steers them. He tunes them. He directs them. He works it out as they follow Him. And you may find yourself invested in a very short period of time in work that is far bigger than you. Too good to explain, making too much of a difference, helping fill up heaven, helping make genuine disciples, but you have to make yourself available first because selfless people are encouraged when we honor them, when we see Jesus work in them, and we say, because you put others first, I'm going to show you some gratitude. Here's the point, church. Ordinary people are extraordinary and make an eternal difference. 
when they've put others first. Let's pray together. Can I invite you to make it really personal? Don't make this just another church service. If you're not involved, if you're not invested, would you decide right now, as soon as I'm done praying, that you're going to fill out that card? Just be very honest with you. The times in my life when I've felt God prompting me through reading or prayer or hearing His Word explained, I've pulled back and not done what He said because I was worried about me. I was worried that I didn't know enough. I was worried that it didn't go well. I was worried that I would fail. I was worried that I didn't have time. I was worried that I wouldn't be well-trained, that I wouldn't be supported. All of those reasons are valid. They're understandable. But would you take a step and step into the work of Christ by saying, Jesus, you first, others next, and I'm here to serve them. Because I love you, I'll put others ahead of myself. In that way, you, heaven will tell you how extraordinary you can be. Father, move in people's hearts, move them out of habit and just the inertia of always doing the same thing. I'm just looking forward to going home and, and not taking any tangible steps with you into the service of others. I pray that you just fill these offering plates up with cards and move in people's hearts to make themselves available so that next week when those ministry teams are around, you can help start steering people. You can direct people exactly into what you have for them to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for women who serve tirelessly in the nursery, who, who teach energetic four-year-olds, who sit with the grieving and broken and pray for them, who serve, Lord, those who are right on the edge of, of being in physical danger of losing their lives because of how desperate their circumstances are. All the different things you're doing in this church. Thank you for giving us so many people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Call, speak to those who are going to take the next step and make them sure and make it practical that they'll step forward this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.